I want to begin by reading what is probably one of the most popular, most well-known, and one of the go-to passages whenever people are going through a difficult time. It was written 2,000 years ago by the Apostle Paul and is found in Romans chapter 8, verse 28 and 29. Paul writes, And we know uh, that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. And what is God's purpose for them? Well, the very next verse answers that. For God knew his people in advance. And see, God's purpose for them is not to make everything in their life smooth and easy, but it's to, it's to make them like Jesus. Very next verse. For God knew his people in advance, and he chose them to become like his son, so that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... We humbly come into your presence. You're God and we're not. You're infinite. We're finite. You're infallible. We're fallible. You never make a mistake. We make a bunch of them. And God, we thank you, Lord, that even in difficult times, Lord, that we have the opportunity, if we so choose, Lord, to have you work in our life in a way that makes us more and more like Jesus. Father, I pray that as we we study today as we gather around your word that we will have ears to hear and eyes to see. God, remove any distractions the enemy may put in front of us so that we can hear your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, it's July the 19th, 2020, and today we're, we're kicking off our, our, our brand new series called Such Things Were Written. In Romans chapter 15, verse Four, Paul says this. That's where I got the title. I'm very creative, right? I worked hard on this one. Such things were written in the scriptures long ago to teach us, to give us hope and encouragement as we wait patiently for God's promises. And listen, as, as we find ourselves living in, in a world that is increasingly more chaotic and is in much more turmoil every day, I, I don't think there's three things that we need more than hope and encouragement and then to be taught the truths of God as revealed in his word. And so what we're going to do beginning today is we're going to look at some of those things that were written long ago, which is so crazy when you think about it. Uh, these are words written thousands and thousands of years ago that people have been studying for thousands and thousands of years, words that have impacted millions and millions of people. And we're going to look at these passages, and, and we're going to allow them to teach us and to give us hope and encouragement. And the first one we're going to look at is we're going to look at the... Uh, the book of Ruth, in a conversation I'm calling, as it turned out, all right? And the way I, I want to do this, and probably every week I'll follow the same pattern, is where you know, I'm going to tell the story, and then what we'll do after I tell the story, we're going we're gonna to look at some of the takeaways, some of the lessons that we learn, okay? Let's do this. The story, Act 1, I, I call that Famine and Return. Uh, the book of Ruth opens up with these seven words. In the days when the judges ruled, okay, in the days when the judges ruled, and, and those seven words tell us a, a lot about the environment, a lot about the context in which Ruth lived. Um, the period of judges, it began after Israel came into the promised land, they conquered the promised land, they settled in the promised land, and after Joshua, their great leader had died. It's a period of about 330 years. It was a period dominated by violence, sexual morality, greed, pride, fear, sin, and evil. Uh, unfortunately, that sounds kind of familiar, at least to me it does, to what we're experiencing in our culture today. 
And it was a time when God's people were stuck in this vicious cycle, right? And, and the way it was is, you know, you know Israel would, would disobey God and they would be oppressed. You know, life is, life is hard, hard. They call out to God. God raises up a deliverer. He delivers them. Everything's good. They forget about God. Things go bad. The craft, this cycle, right? Kind of sounds like your life, right? You, you know, when things go bad in our life, we call out to God. God comes in, moves in our life. Thank you, God. I'm so glad the trouble's gone. And then before long, we forget all about God, and, and things crash and burn again, and we cry out to God. If anything ever shows the grace of our God, it's the book of Judges, right? Because okay, you know what? If they were me, they'd have got through one cycle. <laughs> Boom! They're gone. You know, he put up over 330 years, right? Time and time again, they choose to turn away from God and to worship other gods. They constantly and consistently put other things before God, and they look for life in these things rather than looking for life in God, uh, which is the very definition of idolatry. In his book, um, God's at War, which is a great book that I'd recommend you read by Kyle Eidemann, he says this, uh, idolatry is the number one issue in the Bible. The gods are at war, and their strength is not to be underestimated. These gods are at war for the throne of your heart, and much is at stake. Everything about me, everything I do, every relationship I have, everything I hope or dream or wish to become depends upon what God wins the war. Yet Israel had their gods, they had their Baals and their Molechs and other gods, and we have our gods, pleasure, entertainment, success, money, achievement, romance, recreation, family, ourselves. Understand, anything that becomes the purpose of our life, anything that becomes the driving force of our life has become our God and has become an idol at some level. Get it? Good. Now, the Bible frequently uses the analogy of adultery when talking about idolatry. And I think we all, hope we all would agree that adultery is not a good thing, right? Not a good thing, right? Amen? So, so imagine this week if you go into the Bonefish Grill, and you can recognize me because we're allowed to take our mask off in restaurants, right? So you can recognize me, right? And you know it's me. And I'm having dinner with somebody other, a romantic dinner with someone other than Laurie, right? And you walk up and say, hey, Steve, what's going on? I said, well, I'm on a dinner date. And you go, hey, what about, what about your wife? Hey, I, I take her out a lot of times, right? You know, it's all good, you know? Um, how would you respond? And can you imagine Laurie meeting me at the door, saying, hey, babe, hey, how did your date go tonight, right? <laughs> Let me tell you, newsflash, that is never going to happen, right? It's just not going to happen. And you know what? If she didn't get angry, if she, if she didn't get upset, I, I would be hurt, right? I'd be offended, right? Because it would mean that she didn't really care that much about me, and she didn't care that much about our relationship. Well, I want you to know that God feels the same way about you. And that he feels the same way when you and I, you know, go to Bonefish Grill and we have a romantic dinner with money, a romantic dinner with our success, a romantic dinner with our accomplishments, right, rather than being with our God. You see, like the song we like to sing around here by David Crowder, right, he is what for me? He is jealous for me. He loves like a hurricane. I am a tree bending beneath the winds of his Bend beneath the weight of his winds and mercy. Okay. And we understand how much God loves us when he loves us that way, that he's jealous for us. Right? 
it changes everything, right? It changes the way we see ourselves. It changes the way that we see our world. And so the environment that, that, that Ruth, the story of Ruth and Naomi takes place is this environment that God describes with these final words of the book of Judges. And my goodness, this is our country right now, all right? In those days, Israel had no king. And all the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Oh, my goodness, right? Is that America right now? Is that our nation right now? You know, they had no king, no one in charge. I'll tell you, there's one king, there's one person in charge, there's one authority, and that's God, and that's God's word, right? Everybody else is under that authority, right? And everybody today just does whatever they want, to whoever they want, anytime they want, and it's absolutely chaotic and sad and disgusting. Back to Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. Of course there was. Not just of food, but of God. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went for a while to live in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech. Elimelech, Elimelech, Elimelech. In the jungle. Okay. Elimelech. Okay. That's for, okay, that was free. Okay. That worked better in my imagination, right? And his name means, Elimelech means, my name is, my God is king. His wife's name was Naomi. Her name meant pleasant. And the names of her two sons were Mylon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they went to Moab and they, and they lived there. And, and you probably can't see this very well, but I can't even see it that well. I can't read one, one name there. Look at my notes. I can't read it here either. I see right there. Okay. Well, I know it's somewhere right around here. But basically, right around here is Bethlehem. I can't read it, right? That's the Dead Sea is like a fist. Sea of Galilee comes down the Dead Sea. And Dead Sea is dead because nothing flows out of it, right? That's when we get dead, right? In your life, when nothing flows out of you, you're just stagnant and nasty and smelly, right? And, and you need to let God flow out of you. And his work flow out of you. You're nothing but the Dead Sea, right? You're, you're taking and taking but not giving out. And this, this is the Jordan River. And what they did is they crossed over here in this land, and here right there is the land of, of Moab, all right? It was not a very far journey geographically, but it was a really far journey in many other ways. You see, uh, the Moabites were enemies of God's people, and their descendants from Moab, who, who was the son of an incestual relationship between Lot and his eldest daughter, the Moabites oppressed Israel for 18 years during the period of Judges. Bottom line, when Elimelech, when, he, when my God is king, you know, uh, left the promised land, left the promised land and went to live in Moab and took his family to a foreign pagan country, it was not the right move to make. You see, instead of trusting in God's provision, he began to trust in Moab's food supply. Now, Limelech and Naomi's husband died, and, he, and she was left with her two sons. Okay, so they move over there, he dies, and she's left with her two sons. And things are starting to tank for Naomi, right? I mean, she's a widow. She's a single mom living in a foreign country. We read on. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other named Ruth. And listen, right here is where we see another mistake that they're making, right? Where they're, where they're marrying, where God's people are marrying people who are not God's people. And I, I just want to tell you, usually that don't work out really good. Right? I've seen it time and time again in my time as a Christian where people marry, or a Christian marries someone who's not a Christian, and they're hoping everything will work out, and sometimes it does, but more often than not, it doesn't. 
You have a divided home. What happens to the children, right? Do they get to love God or not love God? And so it just, it's not a good thing. It just isn't, right? And after they had lived there about 10 years, both Malan and Kilion also died. And Naomi's left without her two sons and her husband. You know, I'm sure most of us have heard that expression, when it rains, it, it pours. You know, there's times in our life where it seems like it couldn't possibly get any worse than it is right now. And then it does, right? I mean, sometimes our life can seem like a, you know, a bad country and western song, right? You know, our wife leaves us, the barn burns down, the crops fail, and the dog dies, right? I remember that song from 1977 by Kenny Rogers, Lucille. You picked the fine time to leave me, Lucille. You know what I used to say? You know, four hungry children and a crop in the fields. I used to think it was with 400 children. I think no wonder she left. But it's four hungry children and a crop in the fields. I've had some bad times. I've lived through some sad times. But this time your hurting won't heal. You picked the fine time to leave me, Lucille. Right? All right, all right, come on. It got, it got a little better at the end, right? You know, again, again, you know, she's going through this time of, of great crisis. I mean, as the story begins, she, she's leaving her hometown. She's leaving Bethlehem. And as she leaves, she's got to be thinking, you know what? I'm leaving my home. I'm leaving my friends. I'm leaving my country. But at least I have my husband, and he's a good man. He takes care of us. And I have my two boys, and, and I have my God. So even though I'm leaving everything, it's still, it's still going to be It's going to be okay. Matter of fact, later on in, in the book of Ruth, um, Naomi says that when she left Bethlehem, she left full. She left full, left feeling full. But then in Moab, her husband gets sick, and he gets weaker and weaker and weaker, and then he dies. Here she is, a single mom, a widow in Moab, this hostile foreign country, trying to raise two boys alone, right? You know, one of the toughest jobs, and there's, there's more people in this job description today than ever before, is being a single mom. You know, nothing is tougher than being a single mom, right? Or a single parent, right? When you have no one to hand off to, right? You have no one to balance you because, hey, as parents, every now and then we kind of lose our mind, right, and go crazy, right? And, and if, you know, I'm sure the students in here could verify that. Every now and then your mom or your dad absolutely loses their mind. They flip their wig. Even if they don't have a wig, that wig is flipped, right? They go nuts. And fortunately, sometimes you have the other, the other parent to balance it. Like, you know, the, the sp- husband or wife gives the other person that look like, hey, you're nuts right now. You need, to, you need to calm down, go somewhere else because you're acting like a crazy person, right? Well, a single parent doesn't have that, right? You're tired and worn out. You don't have that. And so it's a very, very difficult job. Well, these two boys, they grow up and eventually they, you know, they marry two Moabite women. And so it looks like things are turning around for, for Naomi, right? Uh, you know, she has two weddings, but these two weddings are quickly followed by two funerals as both of her both of her sons die, and she has no grandchildren, so her husband's dead, her children are dead, and she's experiencing this incredible, this, this incredible grief. Uh, I like what Edgar Jackson says about grief. He says, grief is the helpless wishing that things were different when you know they are not and that they will never be again. And some of you get this, right? I mean, you know disappointment, and some of you don't. Not really, but you will. You see, none of us is exempt from grief and hardship and trouble, right? Jesus said, in this world you will have 
a Disney park vacation the rest of your life. No, he didn't say that. In this world, you will have trouble. You will have loss. If loss isn't here in your life, I'm just here to tell you that loss is coming. And so Naomi, so Naomi experiences what could seem to be an almost unbearable amount of loss and just losing one thing after another. Verse 4, when Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home from there. With her two daughters-in-law, she left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take, her, take them back to the land of Judah. And I love that phrase there. She left the place where she had been living and set out on the road that would take them back to the land of Judah. Now, I understand, and you may want to write this down, there's always a road back from where we are to where God intends for us to be, right? There's always a road back from where we are to where God intends for us to be. I don't know, maybe that's why God brought you here today. I mean, that's why you're listening online. To hear God tell you, you know what? There's a road back. You don't have to keep living where you're living and keep living the way you're living. There's a road back to the life that God intends for you to live. There's a row back. Amen? Then Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husband and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Then she kissed them and goodbye, and they wept aloud and, and said to her, We will go back with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and then gave birth to a son, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it's more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has turned against me. At this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi. Your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I'll be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. Now, you may have heard that last part before, maybe at a wedding, right? You know, the, you know, the, the bride and groom are expressing their love and devotion, and they, they may say, hey, you know, wherever you go, I will go, right? You know, wherever you stay, I will stay. But if you want to be true to the text, what should happen in a wedding you know, is that the bride turns to her future mother-in-law, right, and says, wherever you go, I will go. That's not going to be a tradition that's going to take, right? It's just not going to happen, right? That's not going to catch on. However, that's what's happening here. I mean, there's just this, there's just this special relationship that is formed between this girl and her mother-in-law. And the Bible says when Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. So the two women went on until they came to Bethlehem. They came to Bethlehem which is our first clue that maybe God is starting to do something, right? That maybe God is beginning to do that, uh, uh, causing all things to work together 
for the good of those who love him. Now, now what emotions do you think that Naomi was feeling when she came back into her hometown, right? And she saw all those familiar sights. When she walked by the, the place where her and Elimelech met. Uh, when she sees the place where, they, where her home was. When she sees the places that her boys used to, used to run and play. When they arrived in Bethlehem, Scripture says, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the woman exclaimed, can this be Naomi? Don't call me Naomi. Don't call me pleasant. Don't call me pleasant, she told them. Call me Mara, which means bitter. Hey, don't call me pleasant. Call me bitter. Because the Lord Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full. Had a husband and two boys. But the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me pleasant? Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Lord has brought misfortune upon me. I mean, can you see the expression on her face? She is hurt, she's tired, she's angry, and she's mad at God. Because she feels like, you know what, God, you did not keep up your end of the bargain. God, you know what, God, this is not how I expected my life to be. God, this is not the script that I gave you. My life is not the way I thought it would be. Things have not turned out the way I wanted them to. Look what you've done to me, God. You made my life bitter. You brought misfortune upon me. It's your fault. You've afflicted me. I wonder if you've ever found yourself at the same place. Or you feel like what you hoped for and what you felt like God wasn't going to deliver and give to you, it just, it just hasn't happened yet. It's like, God, I, I followed you. I've, I've given you my life. And, and yet you're, you're not showing up. Things are not happening the way that I think they should happen. So Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, arriving in Bethlehem as a barley harvest was beginning. And the screen goes down to Act 2, as it turned out. Naomi had a relative on her husband's side, a man of standing from the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone whose eyes I find favor. Naomi said to her, go ahead, my daughter. So she went out, entered the field, and began to glean behind the harvesters. And here's those four words I like so much. As it turned out, she was working in the field belonging to Boaz, who was from the clan of Elimelech. As it turned out, you know, as it turned out. In other words, what Scripture is letting us know that get ready. Because we're about to see God's Romans 8.28 skills unleashed in a powerful way. You see, and here, here's the deal. Oftentimes in our life, there's a lot more going on than what we can see at ground level, right? You know, there's another story than just a story that you can see right here with your own eyes. Actually, you know, our, our stories really have, there's a, <clears throat> there's a lower story and there's an upper story, okay? And, and the lower story is what happens in our day-to-day -day life. It, it, it's the one that's being written and told from a six-foot perspective, right? And for me, a five-point, five-feet, nine-inch perspective. In the lower story, it's where we're dealing with the things that everybody deals with, right? It's paying bills. It's, it's crying babies. It's, it's dealing with grief. It's trying to get over a sickness, it's working through breakups and conflicts and difficulties. 
It's Joseph being thrown into a pit by his brothers. It's Moses having to live in exile for 40 years in the wilderness. It's God's people wandering in the desert because they made bad choices. It's the church being persecuted because of the gospel. It's just life. It's just what happens. And the truth is, sometimes our lower story, it just isn't really good, right? You're, you go to a foreign country and your husband's dead and, and your two sons die and, and you left full and that now all of a sudden you're empty. But the good news is that, you know, the lower story is not the only part of our story. You see, there's an upper story. There's an upper story where God is moving in and through the many lower story situations that we find ourselves in. Matter of fact, the book of Revelation really is all about that, right? It's about people undergoing intense persecution, being reminded, hey, there's an upper story going on. I know you see the conflict, and I know it seems like, you know what, the ungodly culture and and false religions, it seems like they're winning, but they're not, because there's another story going on, and that story God always wins, and that story God can't be defeated. See, the upper story is about how God can take any circumstance in the narrative of anyone's life and make it work out for good. You see, the upper story is that you know, Joseph's pit will one day lead him to a palace, and, and Moses' time in exile would equip him to lead God's people, and the wandering in the desert would shape and prepare God's people to enter the promised land, and the persecution of the church led to the rapid spread of the gospel. And our tough and difficult circumstances, as it turned out, as it turns out, God can use them to deepen our faith and grow us in spiritual maturity. And what I want to do right now is to summarize what goes on in Act 2 as it turns out. Okay, so Ruth is out in the field and she's gleaning, right? You know, she's gleaning. And what gleaning was, it was a law in, in the book of Leviticus that said that when God's people went and they harvested their crops, they, they were not to harvest the edges and they were not to go over the fields a second time to get what they missed. Instead, they were to leave that for the poor, you know, and I kind of like the way that worked, you know, you know, they were to leave it and the poor came out and they worked for what they got, right? You know, they, they were able to have some food, but they also kept their dignity, right? Because their dignity and work, right? God didn't say, hey, collect this stuff and hand it to the poor. No, leave it for the poor and let the poor come out and work for that. I think that's so important, the dignity of work. She's out there and Boab notices her. Now, I think Ruth is probably pretty nice looking, right? And, and uh, and she asks, hey, who is she? Well, she's a Moabite who's came back with Naomi. And so Boaz, he goes over to her. He says, hey, I, I'm glad that you're here. I've heard about you and, and the love you have for your mother-in-law. And hey, I want you just to glean in my field, right? Because it, you'll be safe here, right? Because it wasn't safe for a woman by herself to be out in the fields, right? You know, and so he says, just stay here, right? And, and, and I want you just to glean here. And, and uh, so Ruth heads out to the field, and she gleans. He even tells his guys, hey, drop some stuff that Ruth can pick up. <laughs> I like it, right? Hey, drop some stuff. Make it really easy for her to get some extra stuff. And so when, when, when Ruth gets back home and to Naomi, Naomi goes, hey, wow, I can't believe how much you have. Whose field were you in? And when she finds out it was Boaz, all of a sudden, Naomi's faith begins to ignite. The Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He's not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead, she added. The man is our close relative. He is one of our kinsmen redeemers. 
And what a kinsman redeemer was, if there was a widow who died and her husband had no children, a kinsman redeemer was someone who would marry that widow and then have children in the name of the man who had died. And so Ruth continues to work into the field until the harvest is over, right? Until the job is done. And at that point, Naomi decides she's going to play matchmaker, right? And she tells Ruth, okay, I want you to take a bath. You know, I want you to put on some nice clothes and some perfume. And I want you to go to the threshing floor where Boaz is and wait till he's done eating. You don't mess with a guy when he's eating. Wait till he's done eating. And go to where he's sleeping and go to the foot of his bed and uncover his feet. That seems pretty weird, right? You know? And basically what that meant, there's nothing sexual here. It just means basically, hey, will you marry me? So Ruth does exactly that. Okay? And Boaz wakes up at midnight. He accepts her proposal. Hey, you know what? This works for me. But there's a guy in front of me. You know, like I'm number two on the kinsman redeemer. There's a guy in front of me, and so we got to work this out. And then he tells her, hey, I want you to let's stay here until morning so no one sees you leave. Right? Because he cares about her reputation. And I'll just say to any young guy out here or any young guy listening, you know, are you protecting the reputation of the person that you're dating? Right? You know, if, they're not, if you're dating them, they're not your spouse yet. Right? Keep your hands off with that's yours, right? That's not your spouse yet. You know, protect their reputation. That's so important. And so Naomi comes back. I mean, Ruth comes back and Naomi says, very spiritual question, how did it go? Right? And she <laughs> it went good. So Boaz meets this guy who's ahead of him. And he says, hey, you know, Naomi and Ruth are back. They have this land, and, and you're first in line to be the kinsman redeemer. And the guy goes, fantastic. I want the land. This is great. And then, then, then when he goes, Boaz says, what? You need to know that there's a widow, that, two widows that come with him. And one widow is old, and what's her name? Oh, her name is Bitter, right? She's a bitter old woman, and she comes with it. And, and, and the other woman is a Moabite. And from what I hear, she's pretty bitter too. And the guy goes, wait a second. You know what? I don't want to do this. You can go ahead and be the kinsman redeemer. And Boaz is like, well, you know what? Hey, hey, if this works for you, you know, if this can help you out, sure, I'll go ahead and do it. And he does. And uh, they get married. They have a son named Obed. And they live happily ever after. That's a great story. And it's certainly a Romans 8.28 story. Now for the takeaways. These are important. Your tragedy can lead to triumph. You, you know, we, we read the story of Ruth and Naomi, and here's the question. What's the story about? I mean, what's it really about? Well, that's easy, right? It's about loss. It's about a woman who just loses everything. Loses her home, loses her country, loses her husband, loses her sons. Story about loss, but does it have to be about loss? I mean, could it have to be about, could it be about something else rather than loss? You know, there's a, a guy named Gerald Sitzer. He wrote a, wrote a book. He was a professor at, at uh, Whitworth College in Spokane, Washington. And in 1995, you know, he's in a van with his family. Um, there's a head-on collision. In an instant, he loses three generations. His mom dies, his wife dies, 
and his youngest daughter dies. He and the rest of the children are, they're okay. They did okay. And he wrote a book, and I've mentioned this book time and time again. It's a fantastic book about the journey he took. And the journey is called A Grace Disguised, Growing Through Loss. Okay? Now, here's what he said one day in an interview. The experience of loss does not need to be the defining moment of our story. The defining moment can be our response to the loss. The story doesn't have to be about the loss. The story could be about our response to the loss. You know, and, and he wrote this book in 1996. And in July of 1996, you know, it's pretty much the day after my first wife died of cancer on January 28th at 11.59 p.m. on a Sunday night, I went to a bookstore and I found this book. I was looking for a book to help me through loss, and most of them were academic. I go, okay, I don't, I'm not getting you. When I read about this guy's story, I said, hey, I got to get that book, right? And, and that book is what enabled me the very next Sunday, you know, to do a message called Victim or Victor, Turning Your Trials into Triumph. You see, we don't, sometimes we don't get to choose the roles that we're asked to play in life, but we do get to choose how we respond in those situations that we're given. And so we reach this point in our lives, we reach this point in our story where we ask, is this, is this loss, is this going to define me? Is this what I want my life to be about? Is my story just going to be a story of loss? Is that it? Or could it be about something else? Could it be about grace? Could it be about faithfulness? Could it be about God? Could it be about a God who works all things together for the good of those who love him? You know, and I'm not saying it's easy. It wasn't easy for Ruth and Naomi. It wasn't easy for Naomi to lose her husband and her two children. It was very difficult for them to fight against the, the, the waves of grief that were trying to suck them under and take over their lives. But here's the truth. You know, if we choose to focus on you know, the bad stuff that's right at this level, we're going to be just like Naomi. Don't call me pleasant. You call me bitter. Because my life is not working out the way that I want it to work out. I've come back empty because of God. James put it this way. Consider pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you go through trials of many kinds. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work. Your choice and mine. So that you'll be mature and complete, not lacking anything, right? We know there's a purpose behind the pain, right? Next, your character matters and is refined in the fire. You know, in this story, we see two people of incredible character. Ruth was a woman of character, and everybody in the town knew it. Boaz was a man of character. I mean, he cared about the poor. He cared about Ruth's poverty. He cared about Ruth's reputation, he loved his workers. His workers loved him. He was a godly man. And listen, it was the character of, of Boaz and the character of Ruth that allowed God to really work in that situation. Question, in whose life does God work together all things for good? In everybody's life? No. No. And those who love God and who are called to his purpose. And his purpose is what? To be like Jesus, right? Hey, I love God, and I want to be like Jesus. I love God, and I want to be just like God's son, right? That's who we can work in. 
And listen, if they were not people of character, the story would have been totally different. See, it's our character, it's our integrity, it's our faithfulness that allows God to work in our lives in those situations. And the converse is also true. We don't love God, and we're not a person of integrity and faithfulness. We limit what God can do. God goes, you know what, I really wanted to work in that loss, in that situation, but you didn't let me. You did not allow me to. Your character matters, and it's refined in the fire. That's 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7, where he says, you know, your, your faith is refining the fire. Your faith is more precious than gold, and it's refined in the fire. It's refined in the difficult times. Your tragedy can lead to triumph. Your character matters and is refined in the fire, and your sacrifice may be your salvation. You know, so many times when I make a sacrifice, I think, yeah, I'm being so kind and I've given up so much for God. <laughs> but listen, typically our service to others is God's way of saving us. See, Ruth would not have been a part of God's story if she did not make a sacrifice. And here's the deal. It's not in spite of our sacrifice. It's not in spite of what we give up, but because of our sacrifice that we have and find real life. Jesus said, if you try to hang on to your life, you will what? You'll lose it. If you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel, you'll, you'll what? You'll save it. Jesus said, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mothers or fathers or children or fields for me and, and for the gospel will not fail to receive a hundred times as much homes and brothers and sisters and fathers and mothers and children and fields in the age to come, eternal life. You know, there's times when, when I think, God, look what I'm sacrificing for you. Look what I gave up for you. When my heart is right, I realize that it's meant for my salvation, that actually I'm the one who really benefited from it. You know, that it really, really wasn't a sacrifice because I got more, much more than I gave. You know, yesterday, you know, was Maylie's gotcha day, right? And, and, and uh, you know, on July the 18th, 2005, you know, we were in, in China, Changsha, China, and, and that's, that's Maylie eating some um, Teddy Grahams in a thing that's taken in China, you know, one of our pictures of her. And, 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 that, and then in uh, January of 2008, we were in China again. You can see that. I should have saved that Coke can because it's not... That's not English, if you didn't know that, you know. And we're in there, and we're getting Jintao. And, and then, you know, that was then, and th- this is now. Here's a picture now, you know. And, and, and that wasn't a sacrifice, right? You know, because, you know what, I'm, maybe I gave up some time and money or whatever, you know. Have you ever been on a mission trip, right? You know, did you get more of that mission trip, right? Have you ever served somebody? Have you ever helped somebody out? You go to help someone out, and you think, well, I'm giving up my Saturday to do this. And do you get more out, right? Do, do you leave that feeling like, man, I, I sure got more out than I gave? And that's what this story is teaching us. Your tragedy can lead to triumph. Your character matters or refined in the fire. Your sacrifice may be your salvation. Your happy ending is never just for you. See, Boaz and Naomi, they get married. 
And we read, read this towards the end of chapter 4. Then Naomi took, you know, she had a child. And Naomi took the child in her arms and carried and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has had a son. And they named him Obed. Named him servant. Okay? Happy ending, right? Now she didn't think she'd ever have a, you know, a grandchild. She's holding a grandchild in her arms, right? You know, and, and, and she's happy. But it wasn't just for name. It wasn't just for Ruth. Yeah, because actually it was for me and for you. It's for the whole world. Because we read in Matthew chapter 1, 5 and 6, Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Rahab. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David, right? You know, and, and so it was her happy ending, but her happy ending was for, for others. And listen, when God gives us a happy ending, he intends for our happy ending to bless the lives of other people. You know, has God blessed you financially? Has God, has God blessed you with, a, with an awesome family? Has God blessed you with, with great intellect and keen ability? Has God blessed you with an influential position and authority? You know, you know, has God blessed you, you know, with, with free time in your retirement? You know, um, I'll tell you a quick problem. That's what I love about you. Know, we have two of our elders are retired, and, and both of them, both Jeff Ainge and Steve Bailey, they use their retirement for the Lord like you wouldn't believe. Where it is mowing, whatever, mowing grass, painting, whatever, you know. You know, God has blessed them with retirement where they still, you know, can walk, right? And still can think, and they use that retirement for God, right? Their happy ending is blessing other people. Finally, the story, your story is to be one of redemption. A redeemer is one who has the right, the privilege, and responsibility to pay the price and set things right. A redeemer redeems. And Boaz's story was most definitely a story of redemption. It began in redemption. You already heard, you may have caught it earlier. Who, who was Boaz's mom? His mom was who? It was Rahab. His mom was Rahab. And Rahab was what? She was a prostitute, right? She was a prostitute in, in Jericho who came to the Lord. I mean, Boaz knew what it was like to stand on the outside, and he knew what it was like to be redeemed. See, if we're a Jesus follower, our, our stories would be one of redemption. Christ has redeemed us, and we're to go out and redeem and rescue other people. We're to go out and set things right in the lives of other people in his world. Question, does our world need rescue and redemption? I mean, I've never seen our nation more messed up, more misguided, more full of hate, anger, violence, division than it is right now. It is so sad. Breaks my heart, stresses me out, you know. And here's a question I think God would ask me and you, right? If you could join Jesus and redeem just one thing in the world, what would it be, right? Like, like we see what's going on in our crazy world, but if there's one thing you could redeem and make right, I mean, just, you know, ask God this week, God, what do you want me to join you in? I know you're into redemption and setting things right. Where do you want to use me to set things right in this messed up, upside down world right now? Such things were written. Your tragedy can lead to triumph. Your character matters and is refined in the fire. Your sacrifice can be your salvation. Your happy endings are not just for you. Your story is to be one of redemption. Yeah, as it turned out, as it turned out, 
God was at work the whole time. You know, that's the message of Ruth and Naomi. It, it may feel too late. It may seem like everything is too broken, but God is at work. It, it may not seem obvious. His hand may not necessarily be apparent, but God is at work. It may not be immediate. It may seem like things will never change or never turn around, but God is at work. He always has, and he always will. And so let's not allow our six-feet perspective of things blind us to the truth that our God is a God who is always, always at work, causing all things, desiring all things to work out for the good of those who love him. And let us make ourselves available to his upper story, to things and places that God wants to do in the lives of people. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity, God, to come into your presence. Right now, Lord, all of us are in the middle of our own story, and, and maybe some stories are going great, and maybe some are not going so great. God, help us to know that you're always at work. Help us to know, God, that this, this tragedy can be turned to triumph, God. Help us to know that while in this difficult situation, that our character matters, that our integrity and faithfulness matters. God, help us to be willing to make the sacrifices, Lord, that lead us to life. God, help us not to keep our happy endings to ourselves, God, and help us to be agents of redemption in our world. God, God, help us to be available to you, Lord, to be available to make the sacrifices, God, that need to be made to help this world be a better place. We love you, God. We need you. Amen.